This is the Family Friendly Workplace Podcast, produced by Women's Agenda. No employer can claim to be immune from domestic and family violence because the numbers tell us otherwise. One in four women have experienced physical or sexual violence by a current or former intimate partner since the age of 15. And 62% of those who are currently experiencing domestic and family violence are in the paid workforce. But when previously employers may have claimed that domestic and family violence was a private issue that happens in the home and nothing to do with them, many workplaces are now stepping up to the responsibility, seeing it as a health and safety issue and realizing the power that they have to prevent it and to support survivors. My name is Angela Priestley, and this is the Family Friendly Workplaces podcast, an initiative of Parents at Work and UNICEF Australia asking how leaders are creating more supportive workplaces that acknowledge the needs and caring responsibilities that staff have outside of work. On today's episode, we are talking to one employer that is really leading the way, Lion. They are a global beverage company with thousands of employees across Australia, New Zealand and the United States. They've been offering paid domestic and family violence leave for some time, but they made some significant updates in 2021, including a shift to offering emergency short-term accommodation to providing a system of loaner phones to upskilling first responders, and also changing their language to say domestic and family abuse rather than violence, aiming to take a wider look at it to include emotional and financial abuse, as well as coercive control. On this episode, we are going to learn more about all of this from Sarah Abbott, the Global Inclusion and Diversity Leader at Lion. Sarah started in the role there in early 2021 and has previously worked in the DNI space across multiple industries, including tech, education, and banking. Now, this conversation follows an earlier one I did with Lion's then outgoing CEO, Stuart Irvine, who explained how and why the company spent millions of dollars closing its gender pay gap and also how and why it introduced the company's gender neutral paid parental leave scheme. So this latest change in their domestic and family abuse policy takes Lion's family-friendly work one massive step further. Hence, we were really, really keen to learn more. Thank you for listening. If this episode does raise any issues for you or someone that you know, please know that help is available. Call 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. No worries. Thanks, Angela. Love it. So first of all, I mean, just taking a look at your profile on LinkedIn, obviously we're on start, but I can see that I know that you've been working in diversity for, I mean, it must be more than 15 years. I can see that experience across the University of Sydney and Microsoft and other places. Can I ask, how did you get into this work? And is it a career that you thought you'd be pursuing? Has it come about by accident or where did it all start? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it actually started at the beginning. There were two fundamental things that happened during my childhood that gave me a really strong sense of what it meant to be an other or an outsider. First of all, I was born with a club foot. Now, the term club foot is pretty nasty. We've evolved and it's called talipes, thank goodness. But back in 1970, you managed this through surgery and splints. So I had a splint on quite often and a limp, and I still do. And that really, from a very young age, made me feel what it meant to be an outsider. Secondly, 
when I was five, my father decided to pursue a career as a psychiatrist. So this meant our whole family moved to a psychiatric hospital where we lived for seven years. So as a five-year-old, you think, okay, that's fine. But looking back, getting that sense of what these people felt like to be out of the mainstream. They were really rejected from society and weren't part of the norm or the in-group. And that really gave a really strong sense to me what it felt like to be part of the outside. And it really determined my career trajectory in how I could then lean in and support people who aren't necessarily in the in-group, for want of a better word. I mean, what an incredible insight to have as a child from the age of five. That's quite extraordinary. I wasn't expecting that. That's absolutely incredible. So that shaping and particularly around mental health as well. I imagine it would have been quite confronting as a child, but obviously it really does take you in terms of knowing that really any person, no matter who they are, can experience some of these things. Exactly. And these stigmas associated with mental health. I mean, back then it was an asylum for the insane was one of the words that we used. Obviously, we have progressed as a society, which is fabulous. But yeah, just that stigma um, on people who are just needing mental health, um, you know, and support. And so 15 years ago, I believe it would have been Microsoft, I think, where you first had diversity in your role. It might be something else. But what was it like at that point working in this space? 15 years ago, because a lot has evolved since then. Yeah, a lot has and a lot hasn't. I started in a role that looked at respect and inclusion. So Microsoft mandated a course called Tools of Engagement to get a baseline around how we treat each other. And funnily enough, we're doing that now. So the maturity around the conversation has moved on, but some of the basics hasn't, uh, which is quite frightening, really. And that was in the early 2000s. So It's now 2022 and some of the things we're talking about are the same, but some of the things are different. We're a lot more nuanced. We see now a lot more around microaggressions and that smaller behaviours. Back then, it was a lot more about the overt racist comments or sexist comments. These days, we're talking about those less overt ones, um, which can be just as damaging. Mm, Okay. And just your own leadership and your own career, because it has been in leadership, it has been across many different really large organisations and also different parts of the world. How have you made your own leadership family friendly in whatever means of family that is, taking a very broad definition of it, but, but what has worked for you in terms of making that work for you across countries, across massive organisations and across big teams? Yeah, it has been a real journey. Um, I'm married. We have two children. They're now 22 and 20. And um, when I first became pregnant, we never had a discussion around what that would look like in regards to the caring of our first, our son. There was just an assumption that I would take time off and really never really talked about how long. They just assumed that that would probably be until they started school. And I was a very career motivated person. So we as a couple really had some strong conversations around the role of parenting. Um, And it took probably about 10 years for us to have a little bit of equality in our relationship and our parenting style and for um, my husband to really appreciate how much work me, just like a whole lot of women, 
do when it comes to their education, their university and their desires, that they aren't squashed when you have a family um, and that they're just as important as the partners. So that was a really long growth for both of us. And I, I can honestly say we're in a very equal playing field now. Probably helps that our kids are 22 and 20. But yeah, it, it, it was definitely a really interesting time for me. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It doesn't just suddenly switch on that you know how to how to do this or how to share parenting, how to share care. It can take an incredibly long time and, and even that sense of um, this idea that it's, you know, until they'll go to school or even, even that, it's like, but then at school there's whole other issues that come up and it's the whole thing about parenting is it, it isn't just about this time. It will constantly change. I mean, I imagine you still have challenges now even with the kids yeah. in their early 20s in terms of looking after them as well. Yeah. So I had spoken to your former CEO, Stuart, last year, about this time last year. And during that conversation, we discussed, I believe it was around $6 million that Lion had spent closing the gender pay gap, as well as the new paid parental leave policy that basically removed primary and secondary carer labels uh, from that policy to give men and women and all parents paid parental leave equality, essentially. And I mean, I believe Stuart as well had, I don't want to put the words in his mouth because I'd need to go back to the story, but maybe there was some similar comments about his own experience and thinking about how he had wanted to be a little bit more present during those early years when his wife had children as well. And so, first of all, I just wanted to ask a year later, how has that new paid parental leave policy been received? What's the take-up been like and how is it going? It's really interesting when you do a costing for a change in a parental leave policy because you're almost guessing what the future is going to look like. Um, When we introduced this so that men could become um, a carer alongside of their partner, we weren't sure how many men would take it up. So I sort of probably underplayed the costing of that. What's been interesting a year on is that we just did the analysis yesterday we have an equal number of men and women taking parental leave. And that was very different previously. And you are able to take your parental leave one day at a time or in a block or anything in between. And we assumed that men would all take it one day at a time and maybe put it on a Friday or a Monday. There was assumptions around them playing golf on those days, which I thought was quite hilarious. What we found is that 54% of the men who took this parental leave took it all in one block. So they were having the same experiences as uh, women in the organisation. And we talked to some of these men and it was really interesting because some of them had those confidence fears coming back to the role. They were worried about whether the person who'd done the role while they were not there would be better than them. They were worried that they wouldn't be able to do it as well. And this was so pleasing to hear because it gave them an insight to what women on their team also experience every time they return from parental leave. And so just to level that understanding, to build that empathy going forward is just, I guess, a a side win in a way that I was not expecting. Oh, yeah, I don't think I would have expected the, the block situation of that many men taking it as a block either. And it does, I mean, it does give a different perspective, not only in terms of, like you say, returning to work, but also when you're at home for that longer period, as opposed to one day a week or so, it does, it would change things quite a lot. It's interesting, I was looking at the um, New South Wales government has just announced a really significant change around their own paid parental leave policy for all New South Wales public sector workers that also removes primary and secondary carer labels. And I had this thought, because they're such a massive employer, it really is quite 
game-changing. My first immediate thought was I imagine a lot of men would take it one day a week, which is also still great and still a great opportunity for them. But this may indicate that a lot could also be taking it as a block. And so which also kind of throws up this other idea of how um, the idea of parent groups and how they are usually dominated by women and it's usually mothers in those groups and maybe this opens up other opportunities to get both men and women involved in those groups and for men to have perhaps even more opportunities to take their new children out and meet other fathers and mothers and really look at opening that community as well. So I think that's a nice, a nice kind of optimistic hope to think that that might be on the cards in the future for a lot of these public sector workers. So I want to move on from that a little bit and really talk about family and domestic violence and what organisations can be doing, employers can be doing. And I know that you've worked in organisations that are big enough to know that no employer is going to be immune from this problem. Like we, we see the numbers, the stats show that no employer will be immune to domestic and family violence, whether they employ survivors of domestic and family violence or whether they sadly also employ the perpetrators of that violence also. So how did you get interested in this area of work? Has it started at Lion or did it start much earlier? It started at Microsoft, funnily enough. Back in the 2000s, we had a female employee. I lived in Seattle with my family at the time and she was murdered by her husband and she was quite a senior Microsoft employee. It was happened just off campus and the surprise and shock and disbelief that someone from Microsoft would have been in a domestic family and violence situation and coming to work every day and no one knew anything um, was a real eye-opener um, that this is something that isn't socioeconomically bound and it can be happening anywhere in any organisation. And then it was a chance for Microsoft to think, well, what is our responsibility as an organisation to support our team members? And that it is broader than just, well, that happens at home, it's got nothing to do with us. So that's where it started. And then as a result, they did implement some massive changes to support their employees uh, right back then. Mm. So it's carried on from then. And was what Microsoft implementing, was that well ahead of any other employer at the time? I think it was, yes. Um, And they also took it through to their technology um, in their apps, which now most uh, technology organisations have that ability to click on a link and uh, take you away from a website or click on an app on your phone and it can take you to an emergency service without someone knowing. Um, So that's when an organisation takes the responsibility beyond their staff and they look at, well, what can we do in the greater footprint that we play in? And that's where you're really seeing that change, which is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. So you started with Lion early last year. What are some of the changes that have occurred around this area since then? Yeah, the first thing we did is we actually changed the name domestic and family violence to domestic and family abuse. And I know it's a small change, but it actually is quite symbolic because it really does recognise that coercive control that we're hearing a lot more about now. And it recognises just by title that it doesn't have to be a violent situation for it to be domestic and family abuse. So we've moved on beyond looking for the bruises because we know that's not how it presents itself um, most times. And it's a lot more nuanced and we needed to move with that. What we did also was we changed the way you book your leave in the system. Um, So 
in the past you used to tick off something that said domestic and family violence. Now it's hidden in special leave, which has a number of different other leave types inside it. It means we can't track it, but it also means that that person will, no one will never appear on a report, even though we say um, everything's confidential. We know that people don't believe that and it can often pop up in the wrong places. So it's a lot more discreet. And there were two other major things that we did. We offered free accommodation, emergency accommodation. So if we knew someone needed support right then and there, they can reach out and that night be put in a hotel on line that line would cover. And the second thing we do is we offer loaner phones because often the first thing that happens is that your phone is compromised. Technology is pretty clever these days and you can have tracing apps hidden within your phone that you don't know are there, even though you're fairly confident that it's all covered. Um, so we offer a loaner phone for someone who might be worried that their phone has been compromised and they can have those two phones at the same time. One that they know is a safe phone for them and the other that they're not so sure about. So these small things just add up for us to say, we're here, we care, and we're thinking of other ways that we can support you. Mm, yeah, they are small things, but they're really important things. And they're things that um, you don't necessarily know or think about are important unless you're in that situation. And hearing about coercive control and seeing tragically also where it can lead and even the piece about the burner phones, I know that that comes as a surprise to a lot of people how phones can actually be used in a situation like this, in an abusive situation like this. And it is, again, a, a small move that I imagine doesn't cost too much but it is I mean, highly symbolic and obviously highly important to those people who really need it at that time. Can I ask about the what are the, the leave policies around domestic and family abuse? And it sounds like that is the piece that hasn't changed. It's the bits that sit around it. But, but what are your policies there? Yeah, so we offer 10 days leave and that can be for the individual or for the family member. So you might have a sister that you're supporting that would be going through the court system or um, need time to organise their life and their safety. Uh, and we offer that but then we go beyond the 10 days. So if, if someone is in a situation that we recognise they're going to need more support, we have an open conversation. So there's, it's definitely not done and dusted at the 10 days. We've also expanded what we mean by the term family for our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and our Maori and Pacifica employees, because Line has quite a strong presence in New Zealand. Because we recognise that for them, the term family is a lot broader. So we, we look at that kinship model uh, to be more inclusive and to understand that it's just a lot more complex and not as cut and dry as the Western way that we look at what family looks like. Um, so broadening these out means that we're recognising that it's a complex space, not one um, sort of situation is going to be the same and that we're happy to work with an individual on that. Hmm. When the, I mean, applying for this leave, like you said, it is kind of pulled into one bucket so uh, the organisation doesn't see, has that raised any concerns or is there something else that you've done to counter, um, say, a concern of maybe not knowing or not being able to have somebody internally reach out to support those people? Yeah, we did look at that. We know that when someone is in a domestic and family abuse situation, 
who they tell first at work really is going to determine how they go forward from then on um, as to the experience that they have. So we wanted to make sure that we had people across our network that we describe as tellable people, people who are trained to know about confidentiality, impartiality, no judgment, um, so that if someone needs support, they have a person that they can go to who has the right skill set. We call them um, respected lion champions. So they also have a broader role in relation to uh, respect, um, but they are advertised quite broadly around our network and that they do have that uh, skill set around being a first responder if someone needs support for domestic and family abuse. That person might not want to go to their leader. So it's nice that they've got a colleague, someone on their level that they can reach out to and say, this is happening. I need some support from work. How do I go about it? Can you help me? Mm. How do you go about training those people? How are they selected? What I mean, I guess I ask for other organisations who might be keen on following a similar model. And I know that when we did speak about this recently in a panel discussion that there were quite a few questions from other organisations that were interested in learning more. Yeah. I mean, we look at people's attributes to understand whether they would have the right skill set to be that tellable person. Um, so we work closely with HR and their leaders to identify the group. And then we look at um, their spread over the organisation to make sure we've got all our locations covered. And then um, we ask them whether they're keen and we explain the um, what they're signing up for. No one has said no, which is great. And then we do a two-hour uh, session with them on that. And we partner with an external organisation to help us make sure we've got the right skill set. Um, and that we understand the nuances and that every person is going to be different and that they might come and tell you something and they might go away and they might tell you a little bit more, they might tell you a little bit more and then you have to meet them where they're at um, and that it's their story to tell, not yours, to get out. It's a very rewarding role and if done right, can be life-changing for, for an individual. So the people that we've got as our core group um, are in a way quite touched that they've been tapped on the shoulder, that they have the skill set and really happy to step up and be more than just their role um, in their organisation. For other organisations, like I said, first of all, other organisations were very keen on learning a little bit more about, about that. So thank you for sharing Moving to, I think the language change is really interesting and really important and uh, quite, um, I, I won't say it, a simple thing to do, but obviously a quite a good first step in terms of making sure that you can open up to other pieces of abuse. And so it's not just uh, the direct physical violence alone. I do want to ask what you'd like to see other employers doing and perhaps that's keeping to a business of a similar size in terms of staff but what are some of the first steps that you'd like to see employers taking if they haven't really given this issue enough thought as yet? Yeah I think this is a really good question because often organisations think that this isn't their space to dabble in, um, that that it's not part of the workplace um, and they they forget that employees are looking at them to say, what is there for me? How are you supporting me? And they won't know who these employees are. Um, it's not like you put up your hand and say, hey, I'm in a domestic and family abuse situation. No one does that. It usually comes out in other ways. 
So you want to be a company that is ready when someone needs support and you don't want to wait for that to pan out in a, a tragic way. Um, and also you might want to think about how your broader reach outside of just your team members um, could potentially be, like the Microsoft example. Um, it's important to be overt about the support provided, even if you think no one needs it, um, because there will be a person reading and watching you and thinking, wow, that is so good to know that I work for an organisation that is here to help me. Um, because in most organisations of a relative size, you're going to have both perpetrators and victims uh, working with you every day. And they'll be looking for the signs and the symbols um, that you are there for them, that you support them, and that, that if in a time of need, your organisation will step in and help you. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. This has been uh, really interesting and it really follows so nicely from the conversation that I had with Stuart as well. And I remember at the time him noting, because I mean, I think one of the first questions you might say when a company will go out and spend millions of dollars on closing their gender pay gap, you say, oh, what was the, you know, what was the return on investment? And he he noted that it was about uh, the people, that it's paid over and over again in terms of being able to attain and retain the best staff. And I think that that also speaks to exactly the lines that you just mentioned then as well, that's showing that you are there to look after your people. Absolutely. Thanks, Angela. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Great having a conversation. The Family Friendly Workplaces podcast is an initiative supporting the new National Work and Family Standards for Workplaces, which informs employers of the minimum and best practice policies they can invest in to create a great family-friendly workplace culture. You can learn more at familyfriendlyworkplaces.com.